when uh, the hurt and the anger doesn't have anywhere to go, folks will actually turn on one another. And, and, and in the Indigenous community, in the poverty community where there's some woundedness, we call that lateral violence. So we're, we're actually, with, with, the, with the next generation of young people, young men, young women, we're actually turning, we're flipping that narrative. And we're talking about lateral empathy, lateral kindness, uh, all of us looking after each other, bringing back the, the sense of village, the sense of community. here with uh, the Return of the Buffalo podcast, Nibuwe Makade Makwa Indigenous Dodum, and we're sitting here today with uh, Mitch Bourbonier, a person that I really hold um, a special place in my heart for. Uh, he's a real inspiration. I'm very blessed to be able to work with uh, a person like that, and uh, he's one of the three people that really made a huge impact on my life. And if it wasn't for Mitch, I don't know if I would have been able to do the work that I'm doing today. You know, um, he's opened many doors uh, for many people, myself included. And uh, yeah, he's just a all-around beautiful person. Yes. Yes. And, and boujou, everybody. Maingan uh, Inene Indigenikas. It's Marcus Peter Rumpel here. And happy to be here with Mitch. Happy to be here with Henry. Um, happy to be on the Return of the Buffalo podcast. Um, you can find us at, at most places that, that host podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple podcasts, etc. Um, please, uh, if you, if you like what's going on here, uh, subscribe to our podcast and rate us. Um, even if you don't, even if you don't, uh, listen to us on a, on a, on a platform where you can rate us, if you can go and find one and, and rate us there anyway, um, it, it helps other folks, uh, who are into similar uh, kinds of podcasts and stories connect with this one, um, and and kind of bump us bump us into view for uh, the on the very busy world of the internet. Um, and if you if you like what we're doing here and you want to support the Sandy Soto Spiritual Center, um, please check it out at uh, sandysoto.ca. Uh, there's uh, there's various ways that you can can contribute there, uh, and you can. Uh, you can just have a look and, and find whatever method of, of supporting the center works for you. Um, yeah, super excited to talk to, to Mitch. And uh, I don't think I have anything further, Henry. Is there anything uh, no, else I that think, I'm uh, forgetting here? Okay, then uh, without further ado, we give you Mitch Bourbonier. Awesome guy. today with uh, Mitch Bourbonier, uh, a person that, uh, you know, I, I really, um, I really hold high. I have great respect and a lot of love for this person. And, uh, 
he's very well known within the community, the helping community in Winnipeg and around Manitoba as well. I'm very excited to, to have him on the podcast. Um, uh, thank you for joining us here today, Mitch. Oh, thank you, Henry. And thank you for the kind words. That's uh, wonderful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, yeah doing this podcast to kind of like just like get uh, a little bit more uh, about yourself and your story out there. And, uh, you know, what, one of the questions um, that, that I would have uh, is that uh, like, uh, in your life, what are some of the experiences um, and who are um, some of the people who formed you into this dynamic and passionate community leader and the advocate you are today? Well, I, I'll start with my parents. Mm-hmm. So when, uh, when I was a little guy, uh, my dad was very community-oriented, and uh, we lived in a little Métis parish in, uh, in Winnipeg uh, called St. Emile. And uh, he would drive around on Saturdays uh, in his old jalopy truck, and I I tag along. I was seven or eight years old, and he'd he'd pick up donations of furniture all around Winnipeg and bring that to the the families in in our little community that needed those things. And also he, um, you know, he ran a little painting company, and it was uh, the men that worked for him. This was in the nineteen sixties. The men that worked with him had all been World War II veterans in the 1940s, and so they were hmm. they were probably in their 40s, and and they were all single men that uh, today we would diagnose them with post traumatic stress, and back then we they, they were called like shell shocked, mm-hmm. and 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 these men lived in rooming houses, and my dad used to take me visiting, and we would visit the these these uh, beautiful men in in their rooming houses, and uh, I just remember. These guys just lighting up that that my dad and I would would go and visit them. Like it just made them feel so good and so important and special, right? Mm-hmm. And those were those were my dad's guys. You know, those mm. were the guys he looked after. So th- those two things had a huge impact on me. Like just the just the the practicality and the basic needs of just driving around and getting what people needed physically. But then those those visits to, to, to the folks that would really appreciate it really resonated with me. And, and that's kind of what I do today. I do a lot of both those things. I, it's so funny, Mitch. Like I could just, like when I first got to know you, uh, you did something that you called men's group at MATC. And, and it's like, the I just hear the the blueprint of men's group in your dad's story because it was you driving around Winnipeg in your old jalopy van yeah. uh, with a van full of guys. And I remember us picking up furniture at, you know, someone was getting rid of something and some refugee family newly arrived in Winnipeg needed something and we would, we would move furniture and we would pick up recycling and, and then we'd all pile into wannabes for brunch together and, and have the kind of visit that I imagine you, your dad had with, with those guys. Yeah, did, for, did your dad have any kind of like, was, did he have like a formal title or role or that's just who he was? It's just who he was. Uh, my mom, it was a Catholic uh, school and church called St. Emil. That was, that was our little parish. And uh, my mom was a teacher in the, in the school. And, and my dad, like, you know, like he just did everything for that little community. You know, he got a, a gymnasium built for the school and he did fundraising and like he, he you know, he, he worked, uh, you know, his little painting company, but his true passion was uh, building community. Hmm. Yeah, community in, in the sense of like, 
actually helping and, and, and being with each other as, as opposed to like the way um, our society works as like we're so individualistic and it's just it's so refreshing to see the work that you do and, and, and the work that you teach others like you know like when, when I see you doing that work it just it, it makes like me and then others just kind of want to carry that on as well. Yeah, and, and you guys have really carried it on. I'm I couldn't be more proud. Like, you know, people say, Well, I've built I've built this this big community of OPK and action therapy and some of the stuff we do in the community, but really I, I've just kind of done my thing and it's been all these uh, wonderful men and women who've kind of you know, jumped jumped on with me and, and uh and they're doing it and so like for the next generation for our youth and for our, our families and for some of our fo- vulnerable folks out there. So I, I have a great sense of pride, but I, I really haven't done anything but be myself and do my thing and that's still my favorite thing to do is just mm. drive around and be helpful. Yeah. Mm. Well, and I really have you to thank for like my friendship and, and like work with Henry because, uh, you know, I, I approached you when we were getting Return of the Buffalo going and I said like, you know, I need some indigenous guys uh, as on this team and who can you recommend? And uh, and you, you gave me, I, there were there were a couple other guys that, that didn't, didn't end up, you know, taking the positions, but... Uh, but you, you know, you talked about Henry as one of the, you know, finest young indigenous guys you know, and uh, so I called him up, and I'm yeah, just so glad I did. Yeah, in fact, uh, he was the first guy I thought of because, uh, you know, I, I got a lot of loyalty to Henry because I, I think everything I've done is is. Uh, you know, I look back and, you know, Henry was a, you know, a child in care. You know, Henry stayed with uh, an elder we both share, Luke Arquette. You know, right. he went on, right. he went on to be one of the first uh, OPK uh, participants. And then, uh, you know, years later, he would approach me and I, I'll never forget, we met at A&W. <laughs> yep. You know, and I'll never hmm. forget that moment because ever since then, it's just been a, a gift to, to have Henry in my life and uh, how he's taken off and done the work he's done with his family. Uh, mm-hmm. And not a more lovable guy and a more lovable family you'll find either. So, and, and mm-hmm. yeah, you're right, uh, uh, Marcus. I, like, I, I just have this knack of bringing good people together, you know, like yeah. I just... Uh, it just works out. I, I and and I just let them get to know each other. Like I'll just bring someone to someone else, and I'll say, "Hey, here's so and so, and here's so and so," and then I'll get back on my way. Right. And, and then weeks later, months later, a year later, I find out they've done this beautiful work together. And so mm. the story of Marcus and Henry is very common in my life. Mm. Yeah. I've seen you do that. I've seen you do that in meetings. You know, you'll like you'll introduce someone, and you hold their hand, and you'll be like, "This is a good person. I love this person." And then, and then someone connects with that person, and then that that blessing that you have uh, of I think I think I mean part, like it was it was huge for me to have like like to know that Henry had that connection with you, Mitch. Like it was like okay, this this is gonna work. Like and it's 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 just interesting to it's a, it's almost like a different kind of accreditation or something like. Uh, it makes me think about like your action therapy network and and how you kind of maybe talk a little bit about like what action therapy is and and the way you kind of you, you sort of deputized a whole uh, 
a whole network of of leaders and helpers there in, in a way that's kind of like it's connected to but it's like also sort of adjacent to the the sort of standard like you have to have a social work degree to be a helper in the community kind of way of uh connecting with with community yeah i'll i'll definitely comment on that uh, and in fact you alluded to it marcus when you talked about uh, some of the work we did in the 1990s at, at MATC, the Manitoba Adolescent Treatment Center. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually went on a road trip yesterday with Rob Diamond Burchuk to Portage La Prairie to visit, oh, yeah. to visit some of our youth. Uh, is he still at, at MATC? Yes, he is. And, okay, and yeah, that's so, where you and I met. That's right. And, uh, and, and I actually look back on those days in the early, mid, even late 90s as really the genesis of action therapy. And Rob and I were kind of like the original guys doing this, and we mm. didn't even know we were on to something. Mm. Uh, but but we, we, took, we took kids out into the community to be helpers, to give back, to do community service. And uh, man, so, so what it is, is, is we make ourselves available to, to be helpful uh, in the community. So whether it's shoveling snow, uh, for elders in the winter, whether it's mowing lawns for them in the summer, whether it's, you know, delivering hampers to folks who need it, you know, whether it's helping someone move, helping someone get furniture, uh, like it's just random acts of kindness. It, like we just avail ourselves to, to, to be helpful. And, and we've actually moved that into the indigenous world. So, and Henry's really good at this. It's chopping mm -hmm. wood, it's getting wood for the elders. It's uh, harvesting grandfather and grandmother stones for, for medicine people and, and, and the folks that run our ceremonies and our lodges. So, so it's actually really dovetailed very nicely into the, into the indigenous world. But the genesis, the original action therapy, we weren't calling it that back then, but Rob and I were talking about this yesterday. We look back, you know, really almost 30 years ago, we were doing this stuff. And then I, I moved on from MATC in 03 at, to, to the school division, the Louis Riel School Division. And then for the next several years, I kind of did action therapy in the school division. I would take, you know, the most active, high-flying kids that had lots of trouble in the classroom, and I'd take them out into the community, and we, we would do community service and and man, some of them just ended up feeling so good about themselves that they could mm. go back into the classroom and they could, you know, uh, cooperate and do what they needed to do to get their education. So, uh, you know, and then I, I kind of went from there to working uh, in the in the justice world. I, I got a contract working with um, the highest level gang members uh, in the youth custody system. Uh, the program was ca called Spotlight at the time. And then I, I did action therapy there. And a lot of a lot of young people turn their lives around by feeling productive, by get gaining skills, by learning communication, social skills, dealing with the customer, uh, conflict resolution when when we're all trying to work, teamwork, like every every possible independent living and social skill is addressed when you are doing community work, and 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 then. It, it just kind of became official, like Child and Family Services started asking us to, to work with their youth, their Indigenous youth, and do that, that Indigenous version of action therapy, uh, which is a blend of community work, but also uh, land-based stuff, uh, positive mm -hmm. activism, volunteerism, ceremony, all of that we are doing. 
That's it's very very important work. Like uh, the thing that I found while while doing action therapy is um, uh, when it really gets down to it, a, a lot of these these youth they they don't have like a positive outlet. So I, I would be like, you know, right. If you're having a tough day, give me a call, even if it's just like for half an hour to an hour. We're we're going out driving. We'll find something to do and we'll talk. You know, um, you know, growing up in the in the system. You know, you 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 really put up these barriers, these 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 barriers, so that uh, you don't want to be kind of like hurt or anything, and it's it's kind of hard to open up to people, and you know, building that relationship with the youth where they can open up and talk about like their feelings and their emotions and all that, while learning all this other stuff like uh, like lateral empathy uh, is is a big thing, and um, you know, it, it would be nice for you to like kind of like uh, describe that philosophy of lateral empathy if you can, Mitch. Absolutely. So uh, a, a mentor of Henry and of mine from years ago, uh, Larry Morissette. So I've mentioned Luke Arquette. He was very uh, significant for both Henry and I, but, but so was Larry. So Larry headed up a program called OPK, Ogijita, Pimatsu, and Kinematwin. And uh, so Larry also contributed to a, um, a lot of literature around um, colonialism, uh, you know, the effects of assimilation, the effects of oppression. And he was a very, very intelligent man. He was uh, a First Nation and Métis man that uh, actually went through the University of Manitoba Social Work School in, in the 1970s. But uh, he was also very, very community-minded. Uh, but he, in, in one of his books uh, that he, he co-wrote, uh, Indians Wear Red, you know, he talked about the idea of, uh, of what happens to an oppressed group when uh, the hurt and the anger doesn't have anywhere to go. Folks will actually turn on one another. And, 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 and the, in, in, the, in the indigenous community, in the poverty community where there's some woundedness, we call that lateral violence. You know, and that's the last place that people need to be hurting each other, you know, but it happens. And, and in, in its most dramatic forms, you can think of things like domestic violence. You can think of mm -hmm. things such as child abuse and all of those things, but just and self-inflicted stuff, you know, drugs, alcohol, addiction, uh, all that comes from trauma. Uh, and, and, you know, people can become their own worst enemy and they can turn on each other. And, and that's what happens in, in some of our in some of our communities. And we call that lateral violence. So we're, we're actually with with the with the next generation of young people, young men, young women, we're actually turning, we're flipping that narrative. And we're talking about lateral empathy, lateral kindness, uh, all okay. of us looking after each other, bringing back the, the sense of village, the sense of community. So you know, when we get a request to, to, to help someone in the community, that person in the community is, is somewhat vulnerable. It could be a single mom. It could be an elder. It could be, you know, a youth that has no one else. And, and you know, we'll, we'll show up and, you know, get them furniture and, 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 you know, do whatever we need for those folks. But who's doing that work are also other folks that are vulnerable, the youth we work with. Yeah. You know, and, and, and when you think of people who donate, donate their household goods, their furniture, all the things, all the donations that we receive word of mouth, those folks feel good. You know, it's good mm. medicine for them to be contributing. They don't know how to contribute. So so one way they can contribute is to, to do these donations. So, so that's a win. And then, of course, the youth who actually 
pull off all the work. They end up with skills. They end up feeling better about themselves. They're contributing. And then, of course, the people who receive, you know, that goodwill uh, feel loved and cared for. So it's, uh, it's a complete wraparound community healing type of initiative. Mm. It's in giving that you receive. Yes, somebody, totally. Somebody said that once, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really the notion of you can help yourself by helping others. It's yeah. medicine. It and really medicine. that's my story. Yeah. You know, my, my, I ended up at Rossberg House in 1979 uh, as a 16-year-old. Uh, and I, I began to volunteer and spend time with the youth. And, and you know, it, it was medicine for me. You know, I had, I had, you know, so, you know, like all of us, we've all had some trauma, and I, I had my fair share uh, as a little guy, and um, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with my hurt, I didn't know what to do with my anger, but when I ended up, uh, you know, when Creator opened the door for me to be a helper, that became medicine for me, and I've never looked back ever since. Yeah, helping really is like, uh, it, it really is medicine. It's, it's healing, you know. Um, like like I said, getting back to like just the the basics, you know, like uh, helping others. That's just uh, in our human nature. And, and Western civilization, colonization, oppression, poverty has taken that all all away from most of us. And not just indigenous groups, but groups all over the world. And you know, like uh, that really is medicine for the spirit or or the soul or, or what, whatever you you want to call it, right? But uh, yeah, that's very important and. I've seen through the, the the few years of working with Mitch that I've seen the transition from um, some of the youth that were, you know, they're they're getting they're getting that medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Mitch, you kind of alluded a little bit to um, uh, the transition from like going out doing these things in the community to like the indigenous based stuff, and uh, you know. Um, a big part of that and a big part of the things that uh, the work that um, some of us do as accent therapists um, is land-based healing. So like uh, when I, what comes to mind when you think about like that, that land-based healing? Well, there's something spiritual. Well, obviously something spiritual mm-hmm. about the, the earth itself. It's yeah. healing for me. Like I could chop wood all day long. You know, just to be out there, just to, you know, to be the, 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 the sights, the smells, the sensations of being in the bush is, is unbelievable. It's, you know, I can be out there alone or I can be out there with a group. It doesn't matter. It just feels good to be outside the city and on the land. And whether it's clearing land, you know, getting ready for a ceremony, whether it's building a, a Sundance Arbor or, or a sweat lodge, whether it's gathering stones, chopping wood, looking after the fire. It, it there's just something when when you're working when you're moving when your hands are are touching the earth and and like it's just unbelievable and and you know like ultimately we have youth with trauma and ultimately yeah. they do need to talk it out right mm-hmm. but for a young person mm-hmm. to to sit mm-hmm. in an office mm-hmm. and 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 you know be vulnerable to someone that they don't quite know on a one hour, once a week basis does does not work. But I'll tell you, we have we have profound clinical conversations and therapeutic discussions with our young people. But it might be at a fire, you know. Yep. It might be 
you know, a clearing bush. It, it might be just in the vehicle getting to wherever we're getting. You know, it might be sharing a meal. It might be doing volunteerism or positive activism or, or ceremony or, or, or ice fishing or, or anything. Like all the things we do are either, they're either land-based or positive activism or volunteerism or ceremony. And, and, and there's lots of overlap in those four worlds as well. Yes, there is. I, I have a question about like, like you make this, like it's so, it's so compelling, the sense of village, the sense of lateral empathy, the sense of like getting back to the earth and, and, and building a, a community of, of helpers helping each other. And I, it makes me think like, like, I think I want to ask you a question, Mitch, uh, like, why do you think there isn't more of this way of, like, it's a kind of, to me, it's a sort of, there's something basically sort of decolonized about this way of villaging and, and seeking healing in, in the kind of relational on the ground, on the road kind of way of, of being that you embody. And I, like, I, I wonder if you think about like, like why are so many of us stuck in our offices and, and why, why has that, why is that like the, the main way that gets funded, that gets supported, that gets accredited? I, I think all of us, all nations, all around the world have been colonized for such a long time that it, it starts to get into the DNA. Mm. Yeah. And I, I just don't think folks can wrap their heads around how, you know, like I've had, it, not so much in recent years, but I got to tell you, I've, I've, I've been hurt. I've been hurt, you know, by criticism, by almost mockery from from right. other professionals yeah. Yeah. where where and if you think back marcus to the 90s when we were doing what we were doing mm. there there was a lot of pushback there was a lot of negativity there was a lot of folks who who didn't think we were professional didn't think yeah. what we, didn't think what we were doing was uh therapeutic you know and that i i can remember i can remember a certain psychiatrist who we won't name who's whose philosophy was basically that like you and me and the other staff were basically there to sort of be friends with the young people while they worked the medications out. And that was the real, that was the real deal. And the rest of us were like, I don't know, camp counselors or something as far as he was concerned. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that way of thinking that's really in, in the structures or, of society, you know, education and all that, you know, um, even me too, like I struggled, you know, I, I always like, um, the reason why I do this work is I found it in ceremony and I, you know, I, um, I really do enjoy it and it's, it's healing and it's helping. And, but the thing though, is I, I found that it's tough to get your foot in any door really, unless you have some sort of like certificate or, or something or, or a degree attached to your name. Yeah, there's a term called credentialism, yes. and and that is something that actually is you know it, it as you know as time goes on you need you actually need more and more and more credentials and mm -hmm. and you know for a lot of good people that uh, are gifted uh, that can be a challenge sometimes. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And I think that that further oppresses uh, our people. You know, the thing that I love about action therapy is that you have this beautiful group of people that come with such profound lived experience, you know, people that just, you know, been through it, going through it or, or, or you know, still working at it, you know, when that's something that uh, the youth, you know, they, they benefit from and it's it's really hard to quantify something like that. 
Yeah, and I, and I don't think everybody can do it. And I think maybe that's the other problem. And I think that's why there's some resistance in doing what we do. Because it, ta it takes a pretty special person just to be real. And just to, you know, get out there and, and, and take chances and move and, and mm. you know, create experiences. Like, and, and, and there's also a spiritual feeling between, like, the, the, the mentors and the youth we work with. Yeah. you know we, we we adopt one another we, we become family we become like you know all the action therapists are brothers and sisters and and these are our nephews and nieces and they all become cousins to one another yes you know and and uh it, and it's real you know uh you know we, we we might get introduced to a youth formally through an agency and there's a contract and all of that but man that that goes to the wayside once the relationship gets going because even after the expiration of those of that formal work and those contracts we are still involved in the lives of these young people you know we it's 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 a kinship model you know like you know once you've you've uh, you know adopted someone then you're you're you know we're all in each other's lives for for forever in yeah. some ways so like speaking to that like that kinship and that uh uh, using you know family terms like that like um I, i'm curious like um love has to be like really central to that hey yeah like that's gotta like be, yeah. like, like uh, you know i i feel love for these young people yes you know i i feel love for my my fellow action therapists we are family and and we've seen henry and i we've seen it work we've seen you know very angry very hurt mm. Uh, folks like just just triumph just emerge you know uh, and and come out of their shells and and you know find their true selves so like this is this is one thing I find so compelling and so fascinating about your approach and I and I that, that I have a question I've been wanting to ask you Mitch which has to do about like uh, love and boundaries and like I'm, I'm just finishing up my first practicum in the marriage and family therapy program at the U of W, and and I think my clinical supervisor would get really squirmy if I started talking in terms of like loving my clients, um, with with and, and claiming them as family, um, you know, in in the in the tradition that I'm being educated in there, you know, there, there's much more of a sense of like. You know that, like you, you need to, you need to keep that clear boundary between yourself and the client, and and not get too enmeshed. And I think, like the the caution there is, like there are ways in which relationships can get messy, and and like the power imbalance between someone who's paid to be in a relationship and someone who's not, like can get weird, and and so. Like in your case, I think like there's a sense I, I have a sense about you that your boundaries are pretty good. And like I tr like when when I hear you, I don't get a creepy feeling when I hear you talking about love in that kind of work. But I but I hear like other voices in the back of my head from like other people who've been part of my education who are like, Well, how do you do the boundaries uh, in that kind of a in that kind of a work? What like what do you get challenged in that way and what do you like what do you say to that? In the early years, I did. Uh, like, I'll give you an example. So we have uh, two youth jails in Manitoba, one in Winnipeg, one in Portage of the Prairie, Manitoba Youth Center and Agatha, 
Agassiz Youth Center. And so we have incarcerated youth. They're, they're doing jail time. And, you know, way back when, I've been doing this for 35 years, and I've been visiting those jails for 35 years. And way back when, in the beginning, um, you know, I would, I would visit youth. And, and all the visitations were done kind of publicly in a, in a kind of a common area where, where staff was all about, um, which was okay because we could still, you know, kind of hunker down and, and, and have a private conversation. Many of many conversations going on at once because different folks visited at different times. Uh, but as you, you know, you, you visit someone for two years and they, they, they pour their heart out and they make themselves mm -hmm. vulnerable and they honor you by sharing their story. You, you, you learn to love them, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I got to tell you, the Inuit have 40 different names for snow. So maybe we need 40 different names mm, for love. That's interesting. There's all kinds of different, there's all kinds of different love, but, and, and there's another thing I want to comment on while I'm, while I'm thinking about it. And that's toxic masculinity. Mm. So men have taught, have been taught to not say I love you, not feel mm. your emotions, not ask for help, mm. and not to mm. cry. Yep. Right? We do all of those things. And we do it with each other and we do it with these young people. If I didn't love this young person in a good way, if it wasn't real mm. and I was telling them I love them, that would be creepy. That is creepy. Mm -hmm. But when it's real and it, it you can't help but but even say it. And 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 so here, back in the day, I'd, I, you know, I'd have, I'd have like a, a, a high level gang member mm. who's, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old and have, who's had horrible trauma done to them and, have, and has gone on to do trauma to others. And after two years of visiting them, you know, we can stand up after our little visit in the common area. And that young man says, I love mm. you, Mitch. And I say to him, I love you too, my boy. Mm. And back in the day, like the staff were freaking out, like what? You know, they they couldn't understand it, and then we'd give each other a hug, yeah. right? But but man, what a turnaround in all these years! Because I walk into those institutions now, and everybody knows that that's okay to do. Yeah, it is. Like I, we we we've we've actually changed that culture in in youth prisons. Hmm. Well, I and mean, when you think about the attachment science, like what we know about attachment relationships and co-regulation that comes in relationships where there's that bond and that doesn't happen if there isn't that bond, like what it makes perfect sense, but there's a huge tradition of, of kind of suspicion of, uh, that, that closeness in a, in a therapeutic relationship. Well, and, and you do have to be careful and I am careful. And when you talk about my, my boundaries, like I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a very expressive, very emotional. Uh, I'm very, you know, uh, um, extroverted. I'm all out there, uh, but it doesn't mean you're not careful. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm not hugging someone in, in, a, in a, in a private mm -hmm. room, mm -hmm. you know, like we're, we're in a, we're in a public area and, you know, two men stand up and give each other a hug. That's okay. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. You know, two, yeah, two men say, love you, Mitch, love you, my boy, in a public area. That's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you, you yeah, you, I mean, there's there's a place, a time and place for everything. I th I really appreciate you saying that, like, that, that, that you do think about the boundary stuff, because I think that's, 
uh, it's not that you're not thinking about it. Well, I must be thinking about it because in 35 years, I've had zero confusion, zero problems, zero allegations, mm. zero mm. anything negative about how I do mm. my work. Mitch, you said something about like um, decolonization uh, a little earlier. So, uh, what is your role? Uh, what do you think your role like, or what do you think needs to happen uh, to decolonize like the child? welfare system you know um we're kind of like action therapy is kind of doing that on the outside of the system but do you think can do you think like something like that can actually happen within a system of the child welfare system i i don't know um you know the the way it's structured like, like th this is what i'll say to begin with we, we certainly need agencies and folks that are um, tasked with absolutely protecting children, protecting them from physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, from, you know, all the harms that can come to a child. So we do need protective services. There are, there are, there are times when children need to be protected. Mm -hmm. yep. Now, maybe we separate that from healing work. And, you know, from uh, uh, raising children, because in some ways CFS has become a system that raises children. While they don't, aren't able to do mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, in, in, in a micro way that's, you know, what the child actually needs. You know, group homes and shelters and, and emergency placements, th those aren't homes. Th that, 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 you know, that's not a kinship model. Yeah. So maybe we, need to, maybe we need to maybe deconstruct the CFS system. Absolutely, uh, to the core of the system, have a function that really dedicates itself to protection and to safety. But in terms of, you know... Um, uh, kinship placements and adoption and and when i say adoption i mean that in a in a in an, in an indigenous way in terms of you know bringing a, a a child into a home where he's going to feel that's my home this this is my family this is what i need mm -hmm. right maybe that's what we need to look at more mm -hmm. yeah a, a more humanistic approach and uh, i think that that really does need to happen um and I, and I agree, like, there, there may be some, like, extreme cases out there where protection is, like, a must and be, you know, the focus of, of, of the plan moving forward. But, like, that kinship model is severely lacking. And then also, like, the indigenous ways of being, you know, spirituality is also left out. You know, love is left out. You know, being in the, in the system, uh, you know, that's the most lonely feeling you can you can have of, of feeling unloved and it's just it's just beautiful that there's human beings out there working with these youth that are actually authentically really being real with them and and showing them love i'll tell you two little mini stories that will absolutely address what you just said henry mm. one story uh, of a young lady a young woman that i talked to from the north uh was apprehended she was put on an airplane and she was flown out of her community mm -hmm. and she said the worst and, and and you know 
she understands that there were issues back home and she understands that her parents are wounded and need help. She understands that. But what she said really hit my heart. She said, there's not a more hurting feeling than being in an airplane and watching your community get smaller Mm -hmm. and smaller and smaller as they fly you away. The next little mini story I'll tell you are some of the the young men that that uh, and 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 it, it, there's a bit of a continuum in terms of of luck of the draw how some youth do in care and, and others do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, like being in care is is not natural and it's not optimal. Uh, but hopefully, if you are in care, you 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 find a a, a loving long term placement. Mm-hmm. That's certainly not the case for everybody. No. So for those that don't find that more uh, long-term, loving, safe family feel, right? They're, they're shunted from place to place to place. Yeah. They're in shelters. They're in emergency places. Uh, they're in group homes. What the, and again, this hit my heart. Mitch, I'm being cared for by people who don't even know me. I'm being cared for by people who don't love yeah. me. And I cry and I cry myself to sleep every mm. night. And and the loneliness is is aching. Yeah. It's pro it's profound. Yeah. yeah. It really shakes you to the core. Yeah. Yeah. Protection issues are very real, but we don't talk honestly enough about the trauma of apprehensions. And we we don't talk honestly enough about the way passing a kid from one person to the next is is just a recipe for attachment disorders, and uh, and I and I I feel like there's a reckoning that is almost parallel to like the reckoning of the residential school system, where where we take a look at a whole system that is you know been designed uh, you know with this kind of like you know we know best and we'll take over here. And we'll take kids out of their homes, and there there needs to be an honest conversation about, you know, the way even with the best of intentions, you can you can pave the road to certain kinds of hell. Um, and I, I really appreciate the the sensitivity and the and the honesty with which you talk about that, Mitch. Um, yeah, I I just don't think that we we're not good enough yet. At supporting the original families mm-hmm. that these kids come from, yeah, you know, and and I and I think yes, there are times when, you know, they have to be separated because there's so much woundedness. There may be harm in the home. Yeah. We need to separate the family and the child. We do for safety reasons, but there are a whole bunch of families that are are aching to have their children back. There are a whole bunch of kids that no matter how tough it was. That's still my parent. That's still my parent. And I will I will walk in minus 45 from Steinbach to Winnipeg from my foster home to, to see my mom in the inner city of Winnipeg. I will do that. And they do, right? And so I just don't think we do enough yeah. support of, of, the, of the actual families. If, if we could offer the families as much resources as we as yes. we do yes. funding high yes. level group homes you know because sometimes poverty 
causes a lot of that stress. Yep. It's stressful to live in poverty, right? Oh yeah, it is. and and sometimes that's where a lot of hurt and anger and stress comes from, is from poverty, yep. and and to take a fraction, uh, and I'll say it, it's money. I'll t to take a fraction of the money that we we pour into some really high level group homes and give a fraction of that back to the original family so that they can have you know some uh reduced stress around food around uh living conditions around you know uh f safe affordable mm -hmm. housing man th that would mm -hmm. you know th that would do wonders yeah it, it really would there's there's probably just like a very large number out there of families that just need that just a little bit of monetary support but also like um support with uh, like support workers or you know when Fa family support workers mm -hmm. navigators yeah. and that's the thing you know, advocates the thing that i found too with uh uh i don't know like a lot of people know yet but about this but like um, action therapy is actually kind of transitioning into like working with uh, families more now too as preventative yeah, measures. prevention yes prevention services that's oh that's right. interesting yeah. and that's it's a whole different dynamic and you know it, it's beautiful work it's just like mm, mm. just just to see you know the way that um extra support can benefit a family yeah there's two there's two uh examples of folks that are seeing the benefit of action therapy type of support and that is Jordan's principal and also uh, the uh, Southeast Child Family Services uh, Agency mm, yeah. who are now, uh, you know, retaining our support and our services to keep kids in their original homes. Mm. Right. And we do and we do that through Jordan's principal and we're doing that at Southeast rather than just reacting to kids That's beautiful. that have been apprehended That's and beautiful. removed. Yeah. And some and somehow they're finding a way within the I know budgets are very tight in CFS systems, but somehow they're finding a way to, to rerouting some of their resources to that kind of support. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, um, I, I find that, that, that that's actually um, a lot of the focus too. Um, not a lot of people kind of like, it's not in the forefront, but it's always there. But, uh, and you spoke about that as well. Um, the, the importance of, of healing and, you know, um, working on the things that we, we, we may be carrying inside. And a lot of that does come from trauma and childhood experiences. And then, you know, like, um, that's the, I guess, the full, like the center really of like the work that I've been doing. Um, I really transitioned into to, to focusing on that, you know, that healing journey and, and, and walking alongside these 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 people on that, that journey. Mm-hmm. I think that I don't. I don't think there's like a too much of a focus on that, and and I think that healing is is really connected to the spirituality. I I mean, for me, it, like for me, I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of came. I I kind of uh, um, retired from the therapy game for a while, and I I came out here to Plowshares Community Farm, where I live on the land with some people, where where Henry now has a a, a family lodge. Um, and I, I kind of came out of retirement uh, significantly because there was an opportunity at San Soto Spiritual Center uh, to do healing work with families where where there would be, you know, a place for spirit and spirituality. 
and uh, and I think you know for me it's I, I I really it's hard for me to imagine doing that kind of work without access to that and but I, I this is sort of a similar question to the question I had about love like love and boundaries like um, I think we have we still have this hangover from you know European colonial spirituality where you know church and state kind of married each other and and became this this powerhouse that um uh wielded a really really colonial and and oppressive kind of influence in in the name of good works quote unquote and and i i think there's been like the west is kind of it's tried to maybe like clean things up by just putting spirituality, you know, in a box on Sunday morning somewhere. And, and for indigenous people, they're just like, well, that's just, we're not going to put it in a box. Um, but I, like I do, I do like when, when we, when we think about involving spirituality in healing work uh, in, in sort of in a, in a commons that we share with people that come from different kinds of spiritual traditions um, I just wonder, like, you know, even within you, inside yourself, you know, you have this relationship to Catholicism, you have a relationship to indigenous spirituality. And like, I'm curious, like Mitch, how you, how you kind of understand how, how to involve spirituality and healing work in a way that kind of doesn't get sucked into those old fights about, you know, one religion versus another. I think the best word I can use, Marcus, is the word faith. Mm. So faith totally sustains me. Trust. Mm. I, I trust, you know, my creator, our creator. I trust and have faith, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm going to be looked after. We're all going to be looked mm. after and that you know, we, we all need to do the right thing and work hard. And it, that's what's, uh, you know, like there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of heartache in the work mm -hmm. that we do. And a question I get asked a lot is like, how do you not burn right. out? And I've, I've, I got to tell you, I've not even come close to burning out ever oh, wow. in 35 years of doing this. Like, and I go hard. Uh, Henry can vouch yep. for me. Mm -hmm. Like these are long days every day. My my kids are adults now. I'm I'm I hit the ground running. I'm out the door at seven a.m. and I work all day every day, seven days a week doing this work, and I love it. It's it's in my DNA, and I I've never come near burnout because I, you know, every step I take is a prayer. You know, every inter every micro interaction I have with another human being that that produces positivity is a prayer you know supporting folks supporting each other doing the right thing staying balanced working mm. hard you know faith you know just just do it that's a beautiful way of being it reminds me of that teaching you know where you know elders will say that life is a life is ceremony you know and it's it's beautiful to to be able to mm -hmm. Work with a human being that just lives in that way. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of what Stan McKay, another important elder for you and for us, Mitch, in in our last interview. I think he his. I'm trying to. I can't quote him exactly, but he said, "You know, faith is not something you defend. Faith is something you live." And that's yeah. wow. What a testament to that in your life, Mitch. 
And, and Stan McKay is a perfect example of someone I emulate, someone I look up to, someone I love. You know, I love Stan McKay, and, and he's had such a huge impact on my How life. How did the two and of you so connect? Where did the two of you connect? Years ago, um, and it wasn't it wasn't called Sandy Right, Soto. it was called the Dr. Jesse Soto Resource Center. Jesse yeah. Soto. Jesse yeah. Soto, that's right. So it was back in the 90s that... Uh, I, I met Stan, and I, and I actually met his dad before mm. his dad passed away. So that's so cool to, you know, be connected to to his dad, right? Cool. So you came out for some kind of event or something at at the Jesse Soto Resource Center. I, I just I don't know the circumstances because my memory yeah. starts to go <laughs> in my old age, but I just remember that's where. Uh, I met Stan, and then he was also a board member at Urban mm. Circle, and so we were associated through Urban Circle for many years. But you know, he's the type of guy where you know you come around the corner, and and, and there he is, and you just light up. You know, it, it makes me curious about like, this is kind of back to formative experiences. Like, wh- where did you start to connect with Indigenous spirituality for yourself, Mitch? I was. Uh, I want to say it was a, uh, 25 years old. I was a single dad and I was struggling. I was struggling uh, with, you know, with life. And, and uh, it was an elder who noticed that I was struggling. It was 1988 and uh, um, Margaret LaValle oh. took me under her wing. Yeah. So Margaret yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they have a they have a long relationship with Sandy Soto, Margaret and Jules Lavely. Yeah, right. And and that that was that was the doorway into that world. Margaret Margaret huh. opened it, and and then I I just met a whole bunch of folks, uh, you know, from there, and it just it took off from there. And that was uh, thirty three years ago. Yeah, that's like uh, yeah. You got your start literally like I was I was only just like one years old. <laughs> Wow, that's that's awesome. And and you and you and you're mate like like you're Métis, right, Mitch? So you you have that like ancestral connection to that tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But didn't you know? Didn't really grow yeah. up with it. Were your parents like? What w- yeah. w- were there sort of secrets about it, or like how did your family? How did no, your family no, hold just, its relationship to that tradition? Uh, I, I think. We lived it. So how I described right. my dad and my mom, and you know, like my mom was a school teacher, and, and I can remember her spending hours in the evening phoning the the different her different students and their parents and just providing support to them. I remember being in the kitchen doing my homework while my mom was on the phone calling her students in the evening. Yeah, you know, just just to encourage them. Like I, I'm blessed. I'm I'm just so blessed from from you know uh, my folks, right? So they they lived they lived the community values, but I guess I'm asking also for like was there some of that, like for a lot of Catholics and other Christian or Christianized kind of indigenous people, there's there's a sense that they get from the church that that some of their their spiritual traditions are kind of like off limits somehow. Was there any of that, that kind of vibe in in your family of origin? Well, no. In, in the in the Métis community, there's a there's quite a um, an, an involvement with Christianity. Right. Yep. A lot of Métis folks, you know, grew up with 
you know, in the Catholic Church and, and as Christians and, and still are today. I think, I think, um, yeah, like it was, you know, it was, it was never frowned upon, you know, you know, I, I don't know what else to say. Like we grew up in a meat yeah, parish, yeah. never mind, you know. But, so, like all but, the families, all the families in that parish yeah, are yeah. And but so then, did you see people praying with like, like smudge or the pipe or any of it? No, like that's no, like was it was no. that was any of that frowned upon or or that's that's kind of what I'm. It it it, it didn't exist right. for me and it didn't exist yeah, for so, us. So it had just like, been kind of pushed. I, I didn't I I didn't know what smudge was yeah. when I was twenty five. Yeah. So it was just stuff that your parents didn't have any like contact with. Right. It's it's not that we were rejecting it or it just it just was never a concept. No. You didn't grow up with it. Yeah, just like uh, just like me, you know. There's a lot of indigenous families out there that because of mm-hmm. oppression and colonization yep. we we just don't grow up with it. And uh, it's sad to say that I, I really didn't um, grasp that until like I was in care. It was where my my spiritual journey began, you know. And uh, it's actually a, a lot like that nowadays with a, a lot of youth out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it is one of Henry and I have talked about this before. It's one of the really sad ironies that like kids, you know, some kids have to get apprehended in order to make contact with their culture, and and in some ways that was you know because. You know, like Henry's family was was not had had lost its contact with with, and and some adults don't um, their generational memory doesn't get tweaked or touched until you know they go to prison. That's you know, I, I work at Stony Mountain. I work at Stony Mountain, and I I can tell you about so many men who didn't grow up with it, and it took them going to prison. Yeah. You know, to meet an elder, you know, yeah. to, to, to hear the drum for yeah. the first time, you know, and, and when they did, they felt it, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when you, you, when you smell smudge for the first time, when you hear the drum the first time, when someone sings a song and you're there for the first time, it, it resonates into your generational memory. But for some folks, they, they, they didn't get that till they got to prison or, or were apprehended into care. Yeah. Crazy. Were there were there like ancestral memories of of your own parents that like as you got involved in in the spirituality and the culture that like like what was it like for them to witness you reconnecting? I was really the only one in my family that you know pursued uh, First Nations traditional spirituality, the sweat lodge, the sun dance. And, but everybody supports it. Everybody is is so proud cool. of me in my family. But no no one else really huh. picked it up. Like it wasn't you know it wasn't something for my parents and nor for my siblings. But they sure love it and they sure uh, support me. And uh, so that's that's, that's, pretty that's cool. really good to hear. Yeah. Like I didn't get any pushback from my own family. That's for sure. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, Mitch. I've, I've, Henry and I were both really looking forward to, to having this time with you, and uh, and it's it has not disappointed. It's just been so rich and wide ranging, and um, we're just grateful for you as a human being and and for your work and your vision, um, 
and for the ways in which you've crossed paths and touched both our lives um, as a as a mentor. I think you know Henry can add his own. I, you, you've had a longer you know journey together with with Henry. I think you and I we were just we were just getting to know each other at, at Manitoba Adolescent Treatment Center. I remember I I, I think. I left there just just before your dad died, and I uh, I remember writing you a, a card, yeah. uh, uh, a sympathy card, and I remember you coming into the office, and and uh, and we had a significant connection there. And I remember thinking, if, like, this is someone I could become friends with, was kind of the the feeling I had. And I I I, I remember that, Marcus. I was old yeah. too. That was two thousand and two. I I would go on to leave um, MATC a year later. I had I had spent eighteen years working there, and uh, I was called away after that. Yeah, our paths kind of parted around that same time, both with MATC and each other, and and I'm it's just lovely to reconnect. Um, Henry, I don't know what you want to go ahead. Yeah, I really really want to thank you. I, I I know how busy you are, and your your time is so valuable. You know, so I really want to thank you for putting the time aside and doing this with us. You truly are like an inspiration. And, and, and I do tell people like, you know, the world needs more Mitches out there. <laughs> Thank you, Henry. And I, what I wanted to say is that it's an absolute honor to sit with two decolonized men, mm. you know, men that uh, put act, you know, put action to, to their faith and, and just work mm -hmm. and work is prayer, mm. Yes, you know, and supporting others is prayer. And that's, and I see both of you doing that. Uh, and, um, I could not be more honored to, and feel more safe than to sit with you two. And as men, I got no problem saying, I love you, Marcus. I love you, Henry. Mm. And, uh, you know, I look forward to the time that we can uh, see each other. Yes. Out there. Yes. For sure. Without masks. Yep. Right, Henry's Lodge. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be that would be a good. That's a good idea, Marcus. Well, love you too, Mitch. Yes, I love you. Mitch. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you. Thank you, man. Okay. Okay, miigwech. Good, miigwech. <laughs>